Thank you for joining us for our current sermon series at City Baptist Church. We are so thankful that you would choose to grow in your faith with us. And if there's anything we can do for you, we would love to hear from you through our website or social media accounts. We really do believe that God is changing lives through His Word, and so we are praying that you'd be encouraged and challenged by this week's message. I'm excited to share with you this morning a message from 2 Peter chapter 3. So let's turn there together. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is actually our final message in our study of the book of 2 Peter. And so we'll bring it to a conclusion. And this morning we're going to look at his letter and really his final thoughts to the scattered believers of the five occupied provinces of the Roman Empire. Uh, the purpose of this letter, as we know, is given to us in the, in the first letter. Of course, this is Second Peter, the second letter. In the first letter, the, the, the purpose of was given to us in the fact that he wanted to communicate to us some truths before he himself is martyred for his faith. Peter, as we know, is in prison at this point. He is facing a almost sure death at the hand of the Roman Empire. In fact, we do know that he eventually would be killed. But the primary message that he wants us to understand, especially from this second letter, is that Jesus Christ is all that you need. God is all that you need to face this life. He's everything that you need to get through what you need to get through. In fact, in chapter one and verse three, he said this, according as his divine power. So the power of God that is divine, that is outside of this world, according to the power of God, notice, he hath given unto us all things. You know, when scripture says all, it means all. And he says all things that pertain unto life and to godliness. How is this possible? It's possible through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and to virtue. And so Peter is communicating to these Christians who are facing, honestly, the Christians that he's writing to are people that are facing persecution, that are facing really their own lives being at risk. They're facing open mockery in their society. And he's trying to communicate to them that Jesus is enough for you to thrive in the face of hate, in the face of persecution, and in the face of fear. And I got to tell you this morning, that same message applies for us today. That Jesus is enough and Jesus is all that you need to face the hardships and the difficulties and the challenges of this life. And I would say this too, Jesus is enough for you to face the good things of this life. I think sometimes we're like, man, I need God in the difficulty, but when things are going my way, we put him to the side. But we need God in all aspects of our life, whether it's the good times or in, or in the bad times, whatever it may be, we need Jesus Christ and everything that we have. Understand this, everything that we need is found in Jesus and it's found in his word. I gotta tell you, there are no substitutes. There are no substitutes that can bring you the same level of joy and confidence and wisdom that you desire. When you commit yourself fully and completely to God and to his word, I got to tell you, there is no worldly pursuit. There is no false teachers we've studied that can fill that void. Only the truth and the power of the word of God and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, listen, Jesus is enough for you today. And that right there is the primary message that Peter is trying to get across to us. And now as we come to these final eight verses together in this chapter, he wraps it up by moving from argumentation. Remember, a lot of the letter, he's creating an argument for us to consider and to think about. He moves from argumentation and now he moves into application. And the application that he's gonna give to us today reflects the heart that he has for us to live in view of the firm foundation and the firm conviction that we studied last week that Jesus Christ is coming again. In essence, here's what he's answering, okay? The title of my message is this, 
What now? That's the title of the message today. What now? Now that we know, now that we know that that Jesus is coming again, he spent the whole first part of chapter three emphasizing that and developing that argument. Now that we know that, now that we are firm in our knowledge that Jesus is enough, now that we know the warning signs of false teachers and who we should watch out for. Now that we know and we are assured that Jesus is coming again and that we who are saved are not going to endure judgment, but we are going to see eternity with God and we're going to see this wonderful time. What do we do now that we await the return of Jesus Christ? What are we supposed to do? He gives us three practical thoughts as to what we are to do in these final verses together. And I'm just gonna tell you, I've got a lot of content this morning, okay? So as the old preacher would say, if you will listen fast, I'll speak fast, okay? And then we'll get through it together. I'm gonna do my very best to cover the content and give it the, the, the time that it needs. And so what helps me is if you're smiling, that helps me anyway, okay? And if you're looking at me, nodding, okay, not just, yep, I'm going to get that for lunch, but just, I'm with you, stay with me, and we're going to move through these together. I believe these can be very helpful. Remember, the whole book at this point is building a case for us to understand that Jesus is enough and to remember that he's coming again. So what do we do now? What do we do while we're waiting for Christ to return? Number one, we need to pursue practical righteousness. Pursue practical righteousness. Look with me now at verse 11 of 2 Peter. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in a holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Notice here how Peter begins by saying, seeing then as all these things will be dissolved. So as we know, the earth is going to be destroyed, destroyed ultimately. He says, what manner of person should you be? To put it simply, and in our language today, he's saying, since you know that Christ is going to return, since you know that judgment is coming to this world, since you know that your salvation saves you from that judgment, and since you know that you have an eternal home in heaven waiting for you, how is that going to affect your life? What difference is it going to make in your life today? How is it going to impact the way that you act? How do you, or how does what you know change you. This past, a couple of weeks ago, I found out that a friend of mine that I have known forever, we're in college together. He's about my age, maybe a couple years older than me. He found out that he had two blocked arteries, one of them 99%, another one, I think 80% blocked. And he's just in his early forties. And as you can imagine, that was a shock to him. And it was a shock to me when I found out. And so he's already had one surgery to clear out the worst one. And he's got another one coming up. I think next week he has another surgery. But I talked to him this last week and I was like, what happened? You always say that when you have a friend who's sick, what happened and what's going on? And, and we were talking, and he's like, I don't know. And he said, but I'll tell you, this is what he said to me. He said, now that I know, <laughs> is what he said. Now that I know, he was on the edge of a heart attack. It was bad. He says, now that I know, I have to change some things in my life, is what he said. This is his words, no more fast food living, is what he said. Now, maybe that's you today, I don't know. <laughs> and to look at him, you wouldn't be like, man, that guy eats a lot of fast food. No, I don't know if that's it. But for whatever reason, some of it's genetic, of course, but there are some aspects of his life that he's now going to change. And he said that to me, he said, now that I know, it's going to change the way that I look at it. Now, some of you know that feeling. Maybe you've had a, a health diagnosis or you've gone through a difficult season for some reason and it's because of a certain thing and you realize, like, okay, I need to change this in my life. We, and we understand that all the time when it comes to exercise and diet and cholesterol and all of these measurements that that we take. We understand that sometimes we need to make adjustments and changes. 
But that's the point I'm trying to get across is that in the Christian life, now that we know, that's what he's saying. Now that you know that Jesus is coming again, he's saying, if he's coming back to judge the wicked and to deliver the righteous, then how are you going to act? How is that going to affect you? How is that going to change you? And of course here he talks about living righteously while we are waiting. Now I got to tell you, when you're confronted with the idea of practical righteousness, even the term itself, to me, it makes me nervous a little bit. Does that do that for you? I don't know. You think practical righteousness and you're like, because you know yourself, right? You know your heart. But here we're being called to practical righteousness and it can seem intimidating. But what's so great about the word is that he doesn't just throw out, hey, I want you to live this way and not tell us how. And so let's dig into it and see how Peter gives us some markers of the Christian life, guidelines for a person that's living in anticipation of Christ's return. First of all, we see in verse 11 and 12 that besides living in anticipation of his return, along the way, we're to be people who are holy in our conversation. That is our conduct. So we're to be holy in our conduct and Godliness. I'm going to make this really simple for us today, okay? This means we are to be holy in our actions and in our attitude. In our actions and in our attitude. That means there should be something unique. There should be something godly about the way that you approach life. There should be something special in the way that you live your life. This is the idea. This is the all-encompassing idea of practical righteousness. And it is spurred on by our love for God, as well as the knowledge of his return. It leads us to pursue an inward and an outward a life of righteousness, meaning there should be something different about your behavior as a Christian. I believe one of the, probably one of the biggest false teachings that is out there today is that you can call yourself a Christian and yet have all the same appetites and desires and vices and addictions as the world. And you know what I mean by when I say the world, those that are without Christ. There's this teaching that's out there that you can be a Christian, but you can be exactly the same as the world. That there's absolutely no difference in what you fill your mind or you fill your body with, that you are exactly the same as those that are without Christ. The only difference is you proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. I got to tell you that scripture is very clear to us that a Christian has a vastly different approach to life. We look at things very, very differently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives us here an extensive list of sins of the world that people are involved in. He says this, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't you know this? This is a question he's asking. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he gives us this list of all of these sins that people are involved in. He says, listen, a person that is committed to that holy, that is in that lifestyle, that is completely in it. He says, listen, they are not going to be able to inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11 is amazing. And this is what I love about it. Because verse 11 says this, and such were some of you. Now think about that for a minute. He says, there's all of these people that are involved in all of this sin and it's keeping them from hearing the truth of the word of God. And then to the people that he's writing to in the church in Corinth, he says, but some of you were like that. Meaning there's been a change that has happened, right? There's a change, but ye are washed. I love that. You are sanctified. That means you're set apart. You are justified just as if you had never sinned before or in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. I love this so much because what he's saying here, he's saying, listen, there are some things that Christians are not to be participating in and not to be living their life in, but he says, there's a change that happens. 
That's probably one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament, but such were some of you. Because you and I can look at this and say, yeah, I was one of those things, but now I'm free in Christ. I'm saved, I'm renewed. I don't have to live in bondage to that or I don't have to even go that direction because of Jesus Christ. But the point being is that as a believer, we are called to something greater. We are called to something greater. We are called to something that truly gives us peace. That's why in verse number 13, he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. So these two verses here are incredible. They're incredible. Because here, Peter is reminding us that we are not to just be sitting around waiting for judgment to come. I think that's one thing that can be misconstrued. Last Sunday, we talked all about Jesus is coming again. We talked about how there's going to be judgment and there's going to be all this coming. This is not that we sit around in some sort of maniacal, ooh, judgment's coming for you guys, all right? That's not what he's talking about. That we as Christians are like, you better wait, you just watch. That's not what it is. We're not pointing our finger in condemnation. What we're waiting for is what he's talking about here, this new heaven and this new earth that's going to be created following the millennial kingdom of Christ and the ultimate destruction of Satan. And then of course we know that this earth is going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth without sin and free of all of that. It's going to be amazing. And so he says, we look for that and we are encouraged that is coming this time when righteousness reigns and we're longing for that. And that longing is what should motivate us to be diligent. Notice that word, that's a key word there. To be diligent that we be found of him in peace without spot or blameness. What does it mean to be found by him in peace? This is, a, this is an interesting phrase and it can actually have a few different approaches but certainly, uh, I believe that it speaks of the confident Christian living, the person that is secure in their salvation. Someone who is living in the peace of God, as we know, that passes all understanding, living in a peace that because you are not living in fear of judgment to come. It can also, of course, deal with peace related to our other fellow believers, peace in this earth, and God maybe coming and looking for that. But understanding the, context, the contextual side of it, it would be that we are secure in our salvation and we're living in peace in the midst of a chaotic world all around us. And so he says, I want you to be found in peace. Because he's coming back, because this greater day is awaiting, are you found in peace? He also says here that we should live without spot and blameless, meaning Christians should have spotless character and a blameless reputation. Again, this makes us nervous, right? And he includes both of them because here's what's, here's what's interesting. It is possible to be spotless, but not blameless. It's also possible to be blameless, but not spotless. You say, what are you talking about? I'll explain it this way. It's possible for you to live a life that at all appearances and in reality is a life that is pursuing the things of Christ. And you're resisting sin and you're defeating temptation through the power of Christ and you're witnessing and you're living for the Lord. But there might be something in your past might be something in your past that's maybe known or a large part of your past that was maybe a, a sin or just some major issue. And while you're new in Christ and you're moving forward, there's still the idea that there could be something in your past, right? So you could be spotless, but not without blame. On the other side of that, you could be blameless, but not spotless. Meaning on the outside to everyone else, they'd be like, wow, like you got things together. But inwardly, there's a whole lot going on that's not right with God. And so we're called to be both. 
Now, I understand that things in your past you can't necessarily change. And praise God, it's under the blood, right? You're forgiven of that and you can move forward from that. But the pursuit from that moment on is that we move forward spotless and blameless. And he wouldn't ask us to do this if it isn't possible. Now, this is intimidating. This is intimidating stuff. Because we have this picture in our mind of just being like this perfect person, right? Everything's perfect. Everything's okay. No, we're still realists, okay? We still know that we're going to sin and we're going to struggle, but we should pursue it. Does that make sense? We should pursue it. And that's what's so great about the Christian life. It's, a, it's always something that you're moving towards. Imagine if you could hit like, all right, completely mature in Christ. Nothing bothers me. Everything's perfect. Why aren't you where I'm at? Imagine the pride and the issues that would come along with that. We're always pushing forward. We're always moving forward. And so he gives us these things to pursue and to go after. And the point here, he says, is to pursue them both diligently, meaning you need to make an effort at this. You need to try and make an effort to live a practically righteous life so that when Christ returns, we're not panicked. Here's the thing. If you're pursuing a life with Christ and you're genuinely pursuing him with all of your heart, and all of your soul and all of your mind that we know we're supposed to, when Christ returns, you're going to welcome him because you're going to be at peace. Think about it this way. What if I told you, there's a good way to help us understand this idea of living practical righteousness in expectation of Christ's return. What if I told you, I don't know how I would know this, but okay, let's just say that I told you that Christ is returning tomorrow, Monday at 3.33, because you know the Trinity three number. Okay, right, right. I'm just <laughs> Tomorrow at 3.33, Christ is returning. Your first thought is like AM or PM. Okay, okay, PM. All right, PM. What would you do by the time we dismiss and tomorrow at 3.33 PM? If you knew, I mean, it's tomorrow, what would you do? You think you'd get some things right with the Lord? You think there'd be some confession? You think there'd be some prayer? You think there'd be some maybe people that I need to reach out to make some things right? Do you think there'd be some things that I'd be giving? That I'd be catching up on? Some things that I needed to take care of? When you think of it in that context, it's easier to understand this whole idea that we are to live in expectation of Christ returning. He's coming back and it affects the way that we live. It affects the way that we live. So we're to pursue practical righteousness, but we're also to promote sharing your faith. Promote sharing your faith. Look at verse 15. An account of the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, Unto their own. Okay, Peter here is reminding us of what was said just back in verse number nine that the long suffering of the Lord is for a purpose, and the purpose of the long suffering of the Lord, meaning his slow return, we looked at this last time, is that he's not slack, that means slow concerning his promise, but he's long suffering. Why is God long suffering? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, so we studied this in depth in a previous message. And that's what he's alluding to. He's reaching back to that in verse 15 and 16 there. And he's saying, accounting the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. So he's reminding us that the long suffering of God is so that his creation would have opportunity for repentance and for faith. It is a sign of God's love for us. It's a sign of God's love for mankind that he is delaying his return and delaying judgment. 
And so as Christians, though, the point being, though he is slow in coming, though it is a a picture of his heart for us, we should not just be stagnant while we wait. We should be involved. We should be personally and corporately as a church fulfilling the great commission and living and speaking the gospel to those who would hear and receive. Man, praise God. I don't know if you knew this, but in the last two weeks, we've had three people saved here at City Baptist Church. How awesome is that, right? Man, praise God for that. That's the purpose. God has delayed his coming for those three. How many more are there though in our city? How many more at your workplace and in your house and in your family unit that are in need of Christ? He is delaying it so that we can reach more. That is what Peter's alluding to in verse 15. And he emphasizes it even more by bringing the apostle Paul into it. Notice how he says that. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, that was hath written unto you. Now, it's not like Peter needs the authority of Paul on his side, does it? If, I, if you and I were like, hey, Peter said it, okay. Oh, does anyone else verify that? No, that's what he's doing here. He's bringing Paul into it. And he's saying, Paul agrees with me, okay? And because he's saying that, he's adding even more weight to his words here. And he, interestingly enough, he waits until this last section to bring him into it. He says, Paul agrees with me. And of course, by this point, many of Paul's letters would have circulated to many of the same people that Peter is writing to, but he draws on the parallel teaching of Paul to emphasize his point. See, Paul said in Romans chapter two, verse four, he says, despise it thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance of long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God, what goodness? The goodness of his forbearance and long suffering leadeth thee to repentance. So Paul had already stated this. He had said that, listen, don't despise the goodness of God. Don't despise his long suffering and he's waiting. And this was written, I think, to some people who were more accusatory, like why isn't God judging them right now? Do you ever feel that way? God, judge them now. I want you to judge them now. No, he's saying, listen, that is the blessing of God. That is the goodness of God that he's withholding judgment so they have an opportunity for repentance. And Peter's just building upon it. But I think at the same time, it's also nice to have somebody on your side, isn't it? It's great. This past couple of weeks, there's been a bit of a long discussion within the church family. There's been a bit of, honestly, to be frank, there's been a bit of arguing. Uh, There's been a bit of strife in the church family. And it's around the subject of whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich. Some of you are really, were like, look nervous there. You're all like, who's he going to call out? No, there was this, yeah, someone brought up the question, is a hot dog a sandwich? And you can pray about that and think about it. And there's been a little bit of confrontation and we've gone through, discussed all the different layers and types of sandwiches and cuts of bread and meat slices. And anyway, so in all of this, the good thing is that there's been some people on my side. And maybe I have a unique viewpoint. I don't know, but I do know that there are some people on my side and I'm so thankful for you. You know who you are. And I pray for you every day uh, because of that. And it's just nice to be in a a discussion to have someone on your side, isn't it? And you can come talk to me later on what my final decision is on that. But they back me up and they're with me and it's great. And Peter's saying, listen, I'm not the only one saying this. I'm not making this up. I'm not, this is the truth. And so he invokes Paul's support and he also takes a moment to point out that there are some who just like with his teachings have taken Paul's teachings and he calls them unlearned, which means untaught. They're not educated in the things of God. And he says unstable, which means they're not grounded firmly in truth. And he says they rest is the word rest. It's an interesting word there. It means to torture. It means to twist. Think of in the dark ages, the rack. They put them on the rack and they twist that thing and they stretch it out and they twist people's bodies. That's what he's saying is that there are some that are out there that take the words of truth and they twist them to make them fit what they want them to say. Another interesting thing here in the verse is that 
I want you to notice he says here, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them, the things in which are some things hard to understood. Sorry, I jumped ahead here. Where? Okay, sorry, down there. As they do also the other scriptures. I was trying to point out here is that Peter is affirming Paul's writings as scripture, okay? So sometimes there's questions around the idea of canonicity in scripture. This is one of those proof texts, but you can just write that down on the side to maybe study a little bit more. But here he is affirming Paul's spirit-filled writing. And he's saying, listen, this is what happens though, is that there's people who twist it and people, people change it to say what they want. So again, here's another warning. Peter, of course, is likely referring to the false teachers that he spent a bunch of time talking about. But as well, it's another warning for us to be careful about the people that we allow to interpret scripture for us. Okay, that is a process that we have in Scripture that is someone who would read the Word and interpret the Word and preach the Word, all that. We know that, but we need to be careful as to who is interpreting it and be aware of those that would take Scripture and twist it and say, oh, here's a new interpretation of this. Here's a new way to look at things. Be aware of that. Be very careful. We've spent a lot of time dealing on that. I want you to notice that those that do it, those that are not trained properly, those that twist Scripture, that take it out of context, that don't understand exactly what they're talking about, he says that they do so to their own destruction. Now that's a big deal right there. They do so to their own destruction. And so we must be aware that we do not fall in with those that would do, would take the word of God and twist it in that way. So these are the first two ways that you and I can live in anticipation of the Lord's return. But as we come to the final words of Peter, who is about to be killed, history tells us that he was crucified upside down. He did not want to be crucified in the same way as his Savior, and so he requested to be crucified upside down. That is just a tradition that we have, and he was crucified, of course, for his faith. But here in his final words, the last paragraph, the last couple of sentences, he takes a moment to emphasize that we would prioritize our spiritual growth. So he says, first of all, you need to pursue practical righteousness. You need to promote sharing your faith but then also you need to prioritize spiritual growth. Look at verse 17. He says, he therefore beloved, and I like this. He's speaking to people that he loves, followers of Jesus Christ. And he says, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. Here he says it again. You see that? As you know this. So because you know this, beware that lest ye also be led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now we just talked about people that would twist the word of God. So he says again, listen, be aware, be careful. There are false teachers. Do not be led astray. Anytime a Christian listens to a false teacher, there's a risk that you might be led astray completely from the faith or from the truth. And so it's a danger. So he gives us this danger. And he says, listen, beware, don't fall away. And then he gives us the goal. Look at verse 18. But grow in grace. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. This is probably one of the most famous or well-known verses in all of scripture. And this is Peter's final words to believers. And here what we see is a clear goal of how we should pursue or what we should pursue in the Christian life that we should prioritize above everything else. We need to grow in grace. Notice, first of all, he says, grow. Did you get that? Grow. Now, there's no qualifying words for that. And finally, my dearly beloved, if you feel like it, grow. (laughs) If times are tough, grow. If you really need a a helping hand, grow. No, he just says, grow. No excuses, no qualifications, just grow. The best way as a follower of Jesus to become stable or to avoid becoming unstable or unlearned is to commit yourself 
to the teaching and the doctrine of our Lord through scripture. The literal translation of that word growing means constantly growing. It's a continuing action. So you're to be continually growing. There's always to be some growing that is happening. There's never a time that you have arrived spiritually. Every genuine follower of Christ should be growing and you should be growing in some measurable ways. One of the things that I like, if I'm trying to gain or, or okay, I'll put it this way. I like lists. Anybody else like lists, to-do lists? Okay, I'm trying to do something, right? So I have lists and there's all of these things. And then there's sub lists of that list. And I, I love checking it out. It was so therapeutic. So, ah, I did it. And I did that task and I got it out of the way. And we love it. I love measurable things. And so that's what Peter gives to us here. He says, grow. But then he gives us two ways that we can grow very specifically. First of all, grow in grace, grow in grace. Now this has to do with Christian character traits. This is the very thing that he wrote about earlier on in chapter number one. It's also what Paul talked about in Galatians chapter five. And I wanna talk about the subject of grace for a moment. Grace means undeserved favor. We are saved by grace, the undeserved favor of God that is given to us. But grace in itself for salvation is not the end of grace. Grace continues to flow throughout your life as a Christian all the way until you reach heaven and you see your Lord and Savior face to face. Grace does not end with your salvation. I want to just very quickly walk through a few things. I'm going I'm to stick to my notes here so we get through it, okay? We must also be strengthened by grace. The second Timothy chapter two teaches us. We also know from second Corinthians that God's grace is what enables us to endure suffering. In second Corinthians chapter eight, we know that his grace helps us to give when giving is difficult. We also know from Colossians that grace, get this, helps you to sing when singing is difficult. It is the grace of God that allows you to sing and lift your voice and have joy, even though you're not feeling all that joyful and all that happy at that moment. In 1 Peter, we know that our God is the God of all grace. We know from James that he is the one who gives grace to the humble. As we study the word of God, we learn about the various aspects of grace that are available to us as children of God. We know that we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. In 1 Peter 4, we know that there's grace for every situation and every challenge of life. We know that by the grace of God, I am that I am. And Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that should be our testimony as well, that but by the grace of God, I am who I am today because of God's grace. One aspect of growing in grace that we don't love though, is that often to experience that true grace, it means experiencing trials and suffering. Because truthfully, you'll never experience the grace of God until you're at the end of your own resources, until you're at the end of yourself. The lessons learned in the, what some call the school of grace, the lessons that you learn are always costly lessons, but they're worth it because it means you become more like Jesus Christ and you know him in a deeper, in a greater way, because he is the one that gives us all of the grace that we need. In John chapter one, verse 16, of his fullness, have we all we received and grace for grace. He says, grow in grace, but also we need to grow in your knowledge of our God and savior, Jesus Christ. Did you know it's easier to grow in knowledge than it is to grow in grace? It's easier to grow in knowledge than it is to grow in grace. You say, why would you say that? Because all of us know more Bible than we live out. Facts, right? Okay. That's the truth. There needs to be a balance. There needs to be a balance of those two. Warren Wearsby, an author, put it this way. I thought this was great. He says, knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon. <laughs> and grace without knowledge can be very shallow. But when we combine grace and knowledge, we have a marvelous tool for building our lives and for building the church. 
But notice here the challenge that is given to us. And the challenge that's given is that simply we are to grow. We are to grow. Not just in our knowledge of God, okay? Not just in knowledge of the Bible, but notice what the verse says here. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to get this. It's one thing to know the Bible. It is another thing to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is, of course, the central theme of the Bible. And we know that he is the word. And yet you still need to know who he is. You need to know what he's like. If you're not saved today, you need to know the Savior. You need to know the Savior. You need to put your trust and faith in him. That is what unlocks and opens the door to knowing the word and experiencing grace and being able to grow in that. So he says, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the theme of it all right here. He is the theme of it all. But the challenge here is that we simply grow. He says, grow. It's a definitive statement. Grow, grow. So let me ask you, are you giving effort to growing spiritually? Are you disciplined to grow in both grace and in knowledge? Now, I don't doubt your desire this morning. I hope that you wouldn't doubt my desire. But what steps, let me ask you this. What steps are you taking to actually grow? What steps are you taking? I want to sit on this for a moment because so often as a pastor, people come to me and they say, Pastor Paul, I want to grow. I want to grow. And it's very common and it sounds great, right? I want to grow. Awesome. High five. Let's grow. Okay. What steps are you taking to grow? You can't just be there and be like, grow. It's a nice tone. Grow. (laughs) You got to take steps. Just like you want to lose that extra 20, you want to get that extra certification, you got to take steps to make it happen, right? So what steps are you being diligent about? I'm going to give you a few here. Just, I just wrote these out really quickly. Biblical, what I'm calling biblical marks of spiritual growth. Okay, these are some stepping stones. These are some things that you need to pursue. And I'm going to list them off pretty quickly here. I'm not going to give them much comment. But if there's some areas in here that you're like, I don't know that I'm really pursuing that. Again, it's not about whether or not you are doing them and because you're doing them, you're a Christian. That's not what it's about. You guys know that. We're not saved by works, okay? Our works of righteousness is nothing to God. But he has given us a pathway for growth. So if he says grow, how do we get there, okay? Just really briefly, I'm gonna gonna roll through these, okay? Reading your Bible faithfully. Man, that's great. (laughs) Faithful and dedicated prayer. Living by faith. Okay, this is a big one. What are you doing right now that's by faith? Is there any aspect of your life that you're like, this is by faith. I'm doing this by faith. I'm not talking about the situation you got yourself into, okay? (laughs) That's your fault, right? (laughs) What are you doing by faith? What are you doing by faith right now? Committed to the local church. Man, that's big. These are steps of growth. Involved in the church. Faithfully attending services and groups. Giving obediently by faith and with grace serving the body of Christ, sharing your faith and teaching others. Okay, this is a very short list. We could probably give you a lot more, but these are some real basic markers. These are some things that you can pursue that will help you to grow in your faith. And the categories are very simple. Your personal walk with God, so prayer and scripture and, and, and all of that, that your personal walk with God. And then it has to do with the local church, which we know Jesus Christ gave himself for the local church. This church is not just a club to hang out in. God told us what to do. This is what he wants us to do, to be a part of a church and a body of believers and give ourselves to it and involve ourselves in it and be faithful to it. That's what God wants. 
And these are very simple, but they are time-proven steps that you can take that will move you forward in spiritual growth. These are things that you can do that will help you live in anticipation of the Lord's return. Because ultimately, you're never going to be faithful and continue in any of these things unless you truly love the appearance of Christ. Unless you're really waiting for his return and you want to be found in peace, been found of peace in him. And so we need to pursue these things. He's saying, this just seems like a list of do's and don'ts. <laughs> Legalist, right? Okay, every one of these, I can show you a verse in scripture that tells us this, okay? These are not like made up. This is scripture right here. So if you want to argue with them, you can do it in heaven, okay? But this is what God has said. He says, if you want to grow, if you want to know me, study my word, pray, learn to live in a sacrificial way. These are all ways that you can experience God and to understand him and to know him. Ultimately, this is what it's about. As Peter closes, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I love that. This is what it's all about. Focusing our hearts and our lives and our actions and our attitude on bringing glory to God. And what is so amazing is that God gives us all that we need to accomplish these goals. But we must pursue practical righteousness. We must promote sharing our faith and prioritize spiritual growth. Imagine with me this morning, how different would your life be if you put these thoughts into practice? What would your life look like? What would your focus be like? What would, be, what would your peace, the, the peace in your heart and the joy that you experience, what would it be like if you were putting these into practice? Imagine the growth that could come. Imagine the peace and the confidence that you would face life with. And so I encourage you as we close this book that we take these final words of Peter to heart. And we make our lives about bringing glory to God. And the way that we do that is by living in anticipation of his return with this knowledge, with this truth that he is all we need. He's all we need. I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus is all you need. Are you leaning on him? Are you turning to him? That same God that we sang about this morning, that same God is your God. And he's given you all that you need. Would you trust him? Would you pursue him? Would you live godly and righteously in this life? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning for a time of reflection. And I want to ask you, are you living in peace with God? Of course, that applies to salvation. Are you saved today? If you're not, if you've never taken that step of faith and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to please consider a relationship with God, a genuine relationship with God. I would love to show you and take a moment after the service and walk you through what that looks like from scripture. But for those of you that are saved, I wonder, are you in peace? Are you at peace with Christ's return? Or does it make you nervous even thinking about it? Think of all the things I need to get right. I need to do this. I, I don't want to be caught by Christ's return in this sin. I don't want to be, I don't want to be seen in that way. You have time. The long suffering of our God is for repentance. And this is an opportunity for you to renew your pursuit of God, to renew your pursuit of growth. Do you desire to bring God glory? Would you join me in praying today and just asking the Lord, say, God, help me to pursue you in this way. We hope that you were encouraged by the message today, and we would love to hear how God has worked in your life. If you'd like to take the time to visit our website and send us a message through the contact page, we would really appreciate it. 
Have a blessed day.